This is Americana Podcast, the 51st state. Welcome back, Americana podcast listeners. This show is going to be a little different from our usual programming. As I'm sure you've noticed, we've taken a little bit of a break over the last few months as we've taken the time to regroup and reconstruct, etc. As we move forward, it is important to us to reiterate that we are still very much dedicated as a platform to the expansion and definition of Americana music through the conversations with those working within its spectrum. This show has come a very long way from its initial launch. From interview formatting, the artists we book, the kind of questions we ask, and the locations we've been to, it's grown and expanded in ways I don't think any of us could have really ever imagined. And admittedly, it's hard to appreciate the work we've done as we look to the work we want to do. As we plot out that future, we want to take this time and opportunity to look back on some of our favorite moments that we've had. In our very first artist archive, we go back to the very beginning and we revisit some of the best times with the artists we love and cover everything from the hardest conversations to the most rewarding laughs and all topped off with the music we know and love so well. We hope you enjoy this nod to our past and continue to join us as we look, or should I say listen, to the future. I'm your producer, Clara Rose, and this is Americana Podcast, Artists Archive. Lucero, a band apart. If the founders of the band Lucero, Ben Nichols and Brian Venable, were not such great musicians, they could host a talk show. As people, they are smart, well-rounded, enthusiastically engaging, and hilarious. They've been together over 20 years as bandmates, but come off sounding like brothers who communicate as well in quiet spaces as they do in words. As in all great interviews, we went long past our allotted time. I could have spent the day visiting with Brian and Ben. The piece you're about to hear will give you a hint of the genius and cosmic electricity that radiates from these two guys behind the curtain. Enjoy the clip. Listen to the entire podcast and download their newest release, When You Found Me. Lucero is a rare breed as a band prolific music makers, and full-blown road warriors for over 20 years with no sign of slowing down. Listen to what they have to say in this interview or in song or from the stage. Start now with Ben and Brian, the enigmatic and uncompromising founders of the band it's, It was It was great. It was, a, it was a change. We hadn't been in the studio for a while. We, uh, we actually bought this new, this little storage space, warehouse space, practice space, right down by Sun Studios, uh, and right by Sam Phillips. Nice. It's all, we, we were actually neighbors. So we were literally, we could, we rolled gear down the street Same. to Sam Phillips' studio for the recording session. It was 
right next door, so practically. So you recorded this in the Philips? We recorded oh, yeah. it at Philips yeah. Recording Service. Uh, not the Sun Studios, the, right. the, the studio he built after he sold Elvis to right. RCA. Right. It had been kind of, it had its ups and downs, but this Matt Rossbain kid, uh, he he was buying a lot of gear and putting his, storing his gear in there and doing more projects there, and it, he was kind of building it back up again. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we got in there kind of just right at the right time. It was yeah. uh it's he's got it, it it's a really cool studio it's an interesting situation we've done the last three records at ardent all it's the big star stuff all the a lot all of but sam phillips rem is the one room uh-huh. and the one green room type like it's uh-huh. you have the whole building to yourself the whole time uh-huh. there's not a lot of people coming and going so you and, can kind of just yeah and we didn't i we didn't do a lot of pre-production we just went in set up on the floor and i had a couple of guitar parts and we just kind of started playing them and trying to see what would stick and uh and matt ross was usually in the room with us and he he, he put in uh, yeah, his he, two cents and he's like ooh, do that part twice as long and then stop and then yeah. change parts or whatever he was kind of in between is where we'd grown up with jim or other producers dave lowry that didn't do really anything but kind of supervise uh-huh. and then ted who was so in the into it where he was able to hang out like one of us and when we would run through some stuff matt ross was a nice kind of in between yeah yeah so and, uh so yeah, the, it's a it's a different type of record. It's not as produced as uh, as the last few. Uh, it's a little looser, a little rougher around the edges, but uh, it's got a certain life to it that I really. Was well, like. a charm that maybe from the early records, what we call charm is all the mistakes and the pulls recording. Jamestown Revival, The Chosen Family. We kicked off Americana Podcast with two episodes, Memphis Punks turned cult country classics Lucero and the dynamic harmonic duo Jamestown Revival. And even though those two acts could not be further apart in sound, they served as the perfect launching point in that they established the range of which Americana artists can represent. Zach Chance and Jonathan Clay sound like brothers, but are shockingly unrelated. I say shockingly because one of the strongest aspects of their work as musicians are their sibling-like harmonies. At the start of this show, we came to Jamestown Revival with little more than an idea and a general outline of an in-depth interview. Not the way to go in, by the way. But we were met with two young men who were insightful, ambitious, funny, and open to discussing their music and process. Zach and John's diligent and thoughtful approach can be heard in their music especially their latest project since their last episode appearance. Their record, San Isabel, in addition to their upcoming album, features the harmonies we know and love so well and highlight the collaborative and poetic nature which Jamestown Revival has become known for. Some of the first on the show and always first in our hearts, we remember Jamestown Revival. So uh, talk about your writing process together. I mean, I don't want to bore you with the is it the words of the music but I mean as the two of you do you both bring the ideas or is it just a real split I think it's about as even of a split as you possibly could Uh our our writing process is like Uh it's like an exercise in real-time refinement Uh 
So sometimes Zach will play like a little something on guitar, and I'll, and and then I won't recognize what he's playing, mm-hmm. and then I'll hear a melody in my head over that, and I tweak it just a little bit, and then he's like, "Oh, that's cool," and then some a line just pops out of that place mm-hmm. that I don't know where mm-hmm. it comes from, mm-hmm. and then we're kind of off to the races. Mm-hmm. It's just that spark, and then we're just working together. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like we're playing tug of war, pulling on the same side of the rope. So, yeah. speaking of tug of war, so when you come to an impasse, like in a song, you know, like where you, you get that place where you're just like, what the hell happens <laughs> All now? the momentum what, just what, what, stops. What, what, what do you do at that point? Go get lunch. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we had to learn that, though. Yeah. We had to, I mean, we had to learn, uh, we had to, we used to just, and I'm the worst, I get stuck, I want it, you know, uh-huh. I want this thing that's giving me this high, yeah. and uh, I would get so mad to walk away like we wouldn't be able to talk to each other for a minute because i just we and then we learn like oh if you step away sometimes you can come back with perspective or mm-hmm. i had you were always better at it but i just try to i try to not let it dictate my happiness uh-huh. you know um, but I'm songwriting is like it's like drug addiction <laughs> you chase the high and the high never satisfies you for long uh-huh. you know yeah, yeah. You, yeah you but the high is amazing after you write a good song yeah. you are you you have validated all those decisions that everybody told you not to make you know you validated all those at least temporarily and then that subsides and you and you feel like you're not worthy enough to call yourself a musician anymore it's crazy and you got to go write another one yeah Uh i mean for you do you do you have to walk away from it oh definitely a lot a lot a lot of times i do i do have a, a over the past i don't know several years now I do have sort of a, a need to finish it regardless, and then I, think I go healthy. back and tweak. tweak. Yeah, okay. And, and I then I look for the where the, the problem spots. occurred. Yeah. Like sometimes you don't even see where the problem occurred. Totally. You know? yeah. And you go, ah, that's where it is. Got to lose that that right now, and we'll start right here and and redo. So yeah. So that's that's a lot of times what I've done lately. But that do you like, write most of your songs by yourself, or do you feel? I like would say about eighty percent. Okay. Yeah. See, that's weird. That's different from us because I said, you know, we're not huge fans of co-writing, but right. yet I haven't written a song by myself uh-huh. in years. Uh-huh. So we we do co-write, but we just co-write with each other. Yeah. Almost, almost every now exclusive. and then, like the other day, you brought an idea, and so every now and then somebody will get a start. Uh-huh. And yeah. um, if it's not good, we just kind of pretend like. We didn't hear it. And, <laughs> and if it is good, we go. So. We have a, a sort of an unspoken way that we brush each other's ideas yeah. off. It's like, oh, that's cool. That's, it, you know, that's worth that's everything tough, right though. there. Yeah, it is. Just to learn how to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and you can't, you can't, um, if you have an idea, but it's not inspiring the room, then it probably. My, here's my favorite one about like uh, things not working. I wrote a song. I was writing some songs with uh, this uh, country writer Dean Dillon do you know who that is Not he's familiar. pretty much the Stephen Sondheim of all country writers okay uh, well and, we're very ignorant in terms of all that stuff so. well you know like 14 number one George Strait hits okay, okay. so okay. but he's primarily a co-writer writer he writes and he likes to co-write he writes with all kinds of people so I'm right with he and this other guy that he called Phil Billy right I don't know why but Phil Billy like Phil Billy and Phil Billy is just one of these kind of like self-generating idea guys that just throw regardless no filter yeah just yeah. throwing it out yeah. throwing it out throwing it out and you're just going yeah. and so we're writing this song and it's just a little song about living on a river right and so we're just sitting there writing this song and stuff and Dean's got his glasses on his nose and stuff and he keeps looking at Phil Billy every time he throws out another idea he gets looks at it and finally we get towards the very end and he comes up with a really Phil Billy comes up with a really good line 
for the last verse, and Dean goes, Welcome to the song, Phil Billy. <laughs> <laughs> Phil Billy finally got yeah. his made his worth. Yeah. You know what? I respect people who can do that though. Yeah. Who it's just like I'm gonna let it, let it fly, yeah. and sooner or later it's gonna catch. Because I, I tend to be a little more reserved, yeah. especially no. in a room of people you don't you're writing with the first time. That can be a really it's, hard place. Yes. Yeah. You know, to, you know it's it's almost yeah. really better to have all those crazy ideas and then go. Totally. No, 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 no. That one. Yeah. yeah. That one Every now and then that one sticks to the wall. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. Like, oh, that's yeah. good. So, I, 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 so uh, talk about And it's still a crazy world. I guess some things are never going to change. Yeah, man. What you going to do? It's harder every day. Just trying to make it through. It's true. Maybe Judgment Day is overdue. The White Buffalo. Occasionally interviewing people becomes more of an adventure than an afternoon or a phone call. Such was the case with our guest, the White Buffalo, who lives near L.A. We just missed him while he was touring in our part of the world. And if the mountain won't come to you, well, you know how it goes. I met the White Buffalo a few years before on a tour he did with us in the Southeast. I became a fan almost immediately. He had a monumental stage presence, a resonating baritone voice that melted iron and broke glass, and wrote songs that bubbled with grit and compassion. These qualities made him the narrative singing voice of the network TV series Sons of Anarchy. The Buffalo interview is full of surprises. You'll hear how he didn't fall into music the way you might expect, and why he loves singing as much as he loves writing. He's independent and at the same time has an unending love for his fans and friends. He recently returned from Nashville where he completed recording the seventh studio album. The White Buffalo also has a name, but you'll have to listen to the podcast to discover that. For now, sit back and enjoy my interview with The White Buffalo. So um, there, we've had guests in the past that had some, and I've, and I've read and heard that you had some interest in punk music, and so we had guests in the past who also had somewhat the same upbringing, and they also started late playing, right? They played, you know, started playing when they're nineteen or twenty. Is that when yeah. about, about yeah, the yeah. time you started yeah. playing? You think there's any kind of connection in that that punk scene and starting late? Yeah, I don't. Maybe. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think the accessibility and the ease of what punk punk music is, or it's just feel kind of, or it's just a, uh, you don't have to be terribly proficient right. at a instrument. Right. Um, you know, I mean, some punk bands are are, are quite proficient, but sure. uh, that energy and that excitement, I think, is is a is exclusive to punk, and that the skill level doesn't have to be there initially, right. at least. Um, Maybe, maybe it has something to do with. I think a lot of people that are inspired by punk, you know, go out. And I wanted to be a punk, you know, I wanted to have a punk band, and then that's not what didn't spill out of me. Right. You know, we were, I was in this terrible band with two other guys. Hopefully, they don't hear this, but uh, <laughs> uh, but it was primitive. I had only been playing guitar for six months or something like that, if that, and had wrote started writing songs kind of immediately. I was at a buddy's house, and they heard me, they heard me just singing, I guess, and then they came down, and we just ended up putting a band together it was a drummer and a bass player and then i would play guitar and sing and 
we just we would play at these punk venues this place called club mesa i think we played with agent orange one time we but we weren't punk and then we did like a yeah we were whatever it was fine <laughs> we also get you know uh the same the same thing happens is uh we've heard that you know some people will start playing and they will immediately go get a ba- band i mean in this sort of punk evolution of of music they just like start playing and i mean for instance I, I you know i've known so many people that just you know played for years and then finally they get a band together but in the whole world of this punk thing is like oh i learned three chords on right Let's that's go. all you need <laughs> right yeah, yeah. no I, yeah, it is true yeah 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 um okay so stretching across a, a lot of the years uh did you think about music before becoming a performer? Did you? How did you think about music before you became a performer? Just it's out there and you enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was. I mean, I came from a uh, not a musical family, but a musical music loving family. Right. That it was always a part of of our outings. It's always playing in the car, uh, you know, for our trips. Uh, it was something I love and connected with. Right. It was kind of cool. I mean, I think for me, it was a. Um, it was a. I had this whole time of listening where I put the country. I had the country. I had the punk. I had the this other thing that. And by the time it came for me to go, okay, I'm gonna start writing my own songs, uh, performing myself. It I already had kind of this history of things that I had liked that I kind of made my own. Take your sweet time if you can to slack. I know I made of my simple mind to show my heart You're the missing part I build a place with no walls where it's warm inside And it's made up of you and I where our lives are one And they've only just begun You're my shelter from the rain Lori McKenna, the good neighbor. Lori McKenna is my choice, if I had one, for a good neighbor. Her unassuming, friendly manner puts a body at ease. She can probably help assemble a ridiculously difficult bookshelf that comes in a box or make a picture of iced tea as easy as she can write a mega-hit song. She makes it all seem, well, pleasantly effortless. When you hear her story, you'll find she's like the rest of us, Things have not always been easy, and she's had to work hard to put things in place. The difference is that she is grateful for even the smallest of favors and finds meaning in the toughest of times. The last part is what makes her song so special. She illuminates hardships with her words in such a unique manner, it's a slippery slope to say where the tears stop and the laughter begins. Listen to Lori McKenna, and you'll find she walks the walk and talks the talk. Like in her song, Humble and Kind, she doesn't preach to us. She sets an example. She just released a new Christmas EP. Find it and listen. She can be a good neighbor to us all. So I've made the rounds at festivals, and every so often I hear about a song that everyone likes to talk about long before you you hear the song. And uh, my most recent experience with that was the song that Uh, in a a song that blooms with a life of its own was Humble and Kind. So I'd heard about Humble and Kind for months and months and months until before I heard it, you know, because it was one of those kind of songs, you know, um, 
I, I can't think of uh, anything right off the top of uh, Darcy Farrow was a song that I heard a long, long time ago. It's kind of a folk song, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, that I heard forever about this song is amazing. And then, you know, then I heard somebody singing around a campfire. Okay, yeah. That, that sort of thing. And that's, uh, you know, the same thing with Humble and Kind. So can you share the story behind Humble and Kind? Yeah, please? Humble and Kind was just... Um, what I tend to do if I, I don't, we, you know, my husband and I, I told you we have five kids. So there's not a lot of time that I'm at my house and nobody else is there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Except when the kids are all at school. Right. Um, and no my, dogs, no cats? Well, the cat, the dogs okay. are there. Okay. <laughs> no cats, but the dogs are there. But, um, but my kids are older. Um, and at the, the time I wrote that song, my oldest was 25, the youngest was 10. And it was just one of those days, rare days where nobody was home at the house. So I don't go like in my little writing room. If I'm by myself, I'll just sit. I'll tend to sit in the dining room and I just sort of like strangely stare out the window and look at the road. And um, and I was just thinking about all the things that you repeat to your kids over and over again. Like you just th- like the constants, like, are you ready for school? Did you brush your teeth? Did you, do, you know, all these this list of things that happen. Right. Um, but then the meaningful, the really like tricky things, we don't ever repeat the really tricky things. Like they come up once or twice or three times maybe, or you hope they, that you instill it somehow in them, uh, in these other routes. But the, the, the little tiny things we repeat constantly and the big things are, are harder to find. So I thought I'll just write it, make a list. And it's the simplest song. I mean, it is a three chord progression everything rhymes with the word kind right. so it's an easy rhyme right. and once I knew what I was doing I just had to I just had to put it sort of in an order and I just had to like throw away the lines that didn't add up to much you know what I mean and try to keep the ones that meant at least as much as they could to me I tried to make sure I had a line and that reminded me of each of the kids or um and once I got the chorus which is rare for me to have a chorus early I think I had the first verse and I had, I got that chorus when I was like, kind of like, I can't believe I just got that. Like, wow, that was a little bit of a gift right. <laughs> because normally it would have taken me, I think all day to, to land there. And, um, and then it was just piecing. It was just editing really. Um, like help the next one in line was an early line. So you, of course that has to be, you know what I mean? And just putting it in order. Yeah. But I really wrote that song very selfishly for my five children. And I didn't really think, I remember thinking at one point, somebody could say this is preachy. Right. And then I was like, well, I don't really, can I swear in here? Sure. I don't really give a shit because yeah. I'm talking to my kids. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. if someone's going to say, hey, you're being preachy, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I wasn't talking to you. I'm talking to mm-hmm. <laughs> these five kids over here. So, um, that's where the repetitiveness, I think, in the hold the door. Say, it's just so elementary because mm-hmm. I still had a 10-year-old that was literally saying, hold the door, say please, say thank you too. And um, and I sang it in my iPhone and I sent it to McGraw like that day, mm-hmm. which I tend to do sometimes because mm-hmm. um, the McGraws have just been huge supporters of what I do and they're dear friends and have really been, you know, right. guardian angels to me in this business and um and I didn't hear anything for a while um I saw him like a month later and he, you know then I found out he was gonna cut the song and all these things and I so I saw McGraw you know a month later or so and 
he said he was going to cut the song and then he said he was going to make this video and the so the first time i heard it was in the sony parking lot sony publishing parking lot missy gallimore gallimore played it for me and i cried like a baby i just couldn't believe i was like what's happening like you you can't do this with that song like what did what did he do it's huge like how did that happen how did all these emotions come out of this song and I was stunned at what he created from this simple mm -hmm. little lullaby like lullable, song. yeah, like prayer, yeah, like just yeah. uh, so mm -hmm. simple. Mm -hmm. And I was utterly like just couldn't believe what he had what he had created right. and how he saw it in such a big way. Right. Uh, and it's you know it's I when I sing and I still sing it to five kids, mm -hmm. but I've watched. Tim McGraw sang it many, many times where he's singing it to 10,000 people. And it's in a way a different song. In a way, he's a co-writer on that song. I should I should probably give him some money, but I won't. <laughs> 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 but he made all that happen. That was right. all him. And and, um, and it's it that that is like a, to me a lesson in what a song can do. This there's, there's so many people were involved in that song besides myself. Right. right. You know? Josh Morningstar, Gypsy Songman. I love a porch. The view is wide and the air is free. Moreover, conversation is casually constructed and judgment is forgiving. When the fearless adventurer and Gypsy Songman, thank you Jerry Jeff, told Robert that he was raised on rap, he thought, how cool. He asked him, how did rap help you forge your brand of Americana that you're known for? Unflinchingly, Josh replied, I'm obsessed with rhyming. Always have been, but rap helped me get better at it. Josh is our only recorded live performance on this show, and it's not a rap song. He wrote it with the bewitchingly talented Hayes Carl, who has a love for limericks. Listen and see if you can find evidence of either of those poetic forms. Then listen and try to keep your heart from breaking clean in two. And, you know, while we still got the guitar up and going, you, you, would you mind playing that one? Sir, I'd yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, this is called Could You Help Me Remember. Leaves on that ancient old oak tree starting to turn. The same shade as the flames of the fire I'm watching burn. There's an unfinished crossword resting on the arm of my chair For the life of me I don't know if I'm the one left to dare It feels so familiar as I watch you walk into the room May not recognize your face, but I damn sure recognize that perfume. You kneel down beside me and gently take hold of my hand. 
I say, baby, I'm scared, I'm not sure I know who I am Could you help me remember Who it is that I used to be Could you tell me the story of my family Our hopes and our dreams Did I protect my children? Did I stand up for my friends? Was there damage that I did? Did I ever make amends? Did I light up your life like a full moon at night in December? Could you please help me remember? I try to make sense of these old photographs on the wall They're just places and traces of faces that I can't recall There's a ring on my finger, it's golden but faded and worn It was forged in the fires of love Somehow weathered the storm Could you help me remember I'm afraid I'm losing my mind I know we have a story But it's getting harder to find Did I stand up and be counting? Did I just fold? Did I do things as a young man? I'd be proud of when I'm old. Was I house on fire? Was I just a slow burning ember? Could you please help me remember? Country Music's Royal Pain. Strikingly handsome and jumpstart friendly, Waylon is the son of Sammy Smith and Jody Payne. Sammy, Waylon's mother, sang the colossal country crossover Help Me Make It Through the Night, and Jody spent 35 on the years playing guitar for none other than Willie Nelson. It is a blessing to us all that country music royalty aside, Waylon Payne has the bestowed only by God artistic talent. He's a hit songwriter, a movie actor, he played Jerry Lee Lewis in the award-winning Cash biopic, Walk the Line, and has a singing voice that makes pitch correction obsolete. Our host, Robert Keane, has a board tape of Waylon singing the country classic, Apartment Number 9. You'd think that Tammy Wynette was whispering in his ear. To say Waylon's story is unusual or unique is barely scratching the vinyl. You'll wonder how a body can be thrown into the can crusher and come out the other side as clear and effervescent as an artesian spring. Okay, that might be overdoing it with the poetry. In all fairness, Robert did write this one. But Waylon Payne's story is poetic in its pathos and beauty. Download his song All the Trouble if you want to hear the musical version or listen to Waylon coming up next if you want a taste of the book. We've seen um, the LGBTQ artists take center stage in Americana and the country scenes. Um, how are you affected by... Boy, there are a lot of them out here now. That's really crazy increase. that you would say that because yeah. like... 
I've never, I mean, I, I mean, maybe I'd be a lot farther along if I had like done the whole, no, I'm not gay thing. Uh, mm -hmm. it's just never really, <laughs> you know, but it's just never yeah. really been anything that I've, I've, uh, thought would be any kind of authentic. And, you know, I learned a really powerful lesson when I was 18 uh, and, and like, you know, my family disowned me. There mm -hmm. are people in that family that I never saw again for something I had no control over. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I had been raised in a family that had, you know, preached the golden rule. We love you and nothing's ever going to change that, you know. Well, something did. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it, it, it just absolutely crushed me. And I kind of made a vow to myself then. I was never going to put myself in a situation where I wasn't respected. And I was never going to not be respected for being me. You know what I mean? So I just, right. I orchestrated my life to where... It was never a big deal. If you knew me, you knew, and and we were friends. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's never. That's a gentlemanly way of talking about it, if if you mm -hmm. will. Mm -hmm. But I was talking to Randy Clark and Brandy Carlisle at the Americana Awards a couple of years ago, and mm -hmm. I was like, man, you know, I was the lone queer out there for like forever, <laughs> and and like now there's like everybody in here. It's really great to see some folks. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think it's really. I just think it's a shame that it was ever. You know, a thing, yeah. but it has been. Yeah. And I got all the trouble I'm ever gonna need. I got all the trouble I'm ever gonna need. I got all, all the trouble that I'm ever gonna need, and I just don't want no more. We're going to take a quick break, and we will return with Artist Archive shortly. Just because this is an archive does not mean we haven't been on the lookout for what's on the horizon of the Americana scene. With help from our champion from day one, the man with the plan and his ear to the ground, Will Vote. This is Will's Pick. Faustina by John R. Miller from the album Depreciated. If you hear one of our most prolific young Americana songwriters covering another artist on an album, you might want to take notice. If the album in question is by Tyler Childers, you might want to do the extra research. We can help you with that. The song is Coming Down, and the songwriter is John R. Miller. Miller, who Childers describes as a well-traveled wordsmith, mapping out the world he's seen three chords at a time, is originally from the remote part of West Virginia. After many years of playing bass in various local bands, he struck out for Nashville, where he continued to write songs and play music. Encouraged by the people he met in Music City, Miller went into the studio in January 2020 and recorded an album called Depreciated, which was released this past August. And although it has received little press or radio play, it is worthy of consideration for Album of the Year in Will's opinion. Depreciated is an apt title for this body of work. The record contains several songs about cars, boats, and people losing value as they age. There's an underlying wariness in the music that runs through many of the songs that gives Miller's music an authentic, lived-in feel and separates it much from what you hear on radio today. He has an eye for detail that comes from living the life in person and not just hearing or reading about it. This may be Miller's first solo album, but after 15 years in the business, he's no newcomer. His time and service is reflected in these well-crafted songs. The trials and tribulations, highs and lows of a musician's life are captured here and used as a metaphor for the bigger world we live in. 
Many of the songs are dark, but they also reflect a life that has been well lived with many colorful experiences. Mixed with his darkness is hope and humor as well. There are no guitar heroes in this outfit, just players who know their roles and the result is excellent. And there are several songs undepreciated that are worthy of a pick. In the end, it is Faustina that captures the experience and theme of the album. With an acoustic intro that could have been on a Blaze Foley record, Miller sings of his life on the road. It is a song topic that is as old as music itself, but somehow Miller's song gives us a fresh look at the realities of life. And for that reason, it's Will's pick. On a dark December morning Months of bad food and a pauper's guitar Never heeding any warning I've had friends and I've let my friends down Looking for my heart in the lost and found Bare hands tried to stop the rain from Todd Snyder, Money, Compliments, and Publicity. You know when you get those conversations about cult classics, where someone will start talking to you about, about pop culture obelisks like The Big Lebowski, Neutral Milk Hotel, Rocky Horror Picture Show, and they'll be talking to you like you've never heard of them, and about how cool they are and what makes them so underappreciated. You know, you get the gist. All the while, you're just kind of nodding your head because not only do you know about those subjects, but you love them. This happens with songwriters, and I personally feel like this happens with Todd Snyder all the time. Todd Snyder has been around for a while now, and he may not be playing Madison Square Garden with Harry Styles, but by God, people who are in the know know about Todd Snyder. Snyder's catalog is high art and low art getting caught in bed together. It's sacred and profane. It is as fit for the Kennedy Center as it is for White Horse Saloon in Austin, Texas. And people who like music, as in really thoroughly enjoy the craft of music, enjoy Todd Snyder. Like his song, he could do for a little bit more money and compliments and publicity. We know how that would go based on the song, by the way, but we'll take it. For what he has contributed in the realm of roots, Americana, and songwriting, it's the least we can do to recognize him for it. And as much as we love a cult classic, I would one day really like to see him move into the realm of ubiquitous icon. For now, you can catch Todd playing and pick up his latest record, First Agnostic Church of Hope and Wonder, over on his website. And you can also enjoy this moment from our conversation with him. Money, check. Compliments, check. Publicity, check. And, um, another thing that I, I picked up is, and I, I knew this anyway, Todd, but uh, you are such an incredible student of the craft of songwriting. And uh, I just wanted to ask you, to, uh, I have to refer to uh, the songwriter Frank Lesser. Uh, one of his routines was to get up at four in the morning and he wrote till about 10 in the morning and then did the, you know, went back to sleep. And, um, and, and I know that you're like, you're an early riser. So that's why I bring yeah. that up. So, yeah. so uh, can you give me a little bit of insight into your, process you just your genuine day process to like write a song yeah um i go i usually get up like at five and that's what i do like right before the sun comes up i just naturally get up even if i went to bed at one i get up at five and then i'll work on songs kind of compulsively i smoke i wake up and start chugging coffee and smoking pot till i'm just shaking and <laughs> <laughs> 
and I just chip away at songs, you know, and then I take a nap and then I just go out looking for them later that day, you know, or go out trying to live them. I don't do that like I used to, but I used to like wake up really early, work on songs, then go back to bed and then wake up and head down to the bars and try to instigate stuff or try to get people acting out, you know, and anytime someone's leaning towards acting out, be the person who says, yeah, do it, do it. <laughs> and then, you're and either the, to... you're the enabled or the enabler right yeah gotcha. yeah. yeah trying yeah. to stir the soup make yeah. it rhyme later yeah there you go uh <laughs> so you kind of uh touched on this when you were talking about the book but as someone who's processed both grief and hardship quite openly in their work is songwriting an actively therapeutic process god this is crazy uh i'm like I, I just am, I am grateful to be having this conversation with you. I want to ask you all this shit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, yeah, for me, that's how it started, uh, was, um, um, is this uh, almost like a, a journal or a meditate, uh, some place where you could go get the last word or, uh, you know, uh, the girl kind of go, go just sing it out, you know, mm-hmm. sit in your room and sing it out. And it, and it became like if I yeah if I didn't feel like someone was treating me right or or I maybe have some fancy about saying all the right things to somebody or just sit in my room and sing and then um, then I started realizing that you know that was those were like call, you'd call that a new song you know but I didn't really know that until I met Kent and then he was like these are songs there's people that that's all they do is write songs. I was kind of, I didn't really know him much. Like, I didn't know Chris Christopherson or Bobby McGee or any of that when I was uh-huh. 19. Right, right. And so is there a time when um, this becomes internal and it's a subconscious process and you finish a song and then you go, hey, I know what this is about, you know? It's, <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not obviously pointed, but you're, you're saying yeah. something. Uh-huh. A lot of times it's done. I, do you do that too? You go like, oh, uh-huh. I get what I was doing. Yeah. Just let <laughs> it out. kind of frightening. <laughs> yeah, I sometimes go, oh, <laughs> shit. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> I just like try to get out of the thing's way and then listen to it later and, and go, oh, wow. In fact, when I listened to the, I didn't, like I just went through a divorce. And during that time, I was making up songs for the hardworking Americans and and then after the divorce, I heard that record, and I was like, "How did you not hear see it coming? It's all over this record, you know." But I like it as a therapeutic thing. My, in fact, my goal when I started was that I never wanted to to lose that part of it, and that if I did, then then I should stop doing it as a, as you know for for money. If it doesn't help you. You know, if it doesn't help process grief or if it doesn't help you celebrate, if it's just no longer doing that first thing it did, like if I don't, if I'm not still into doing it, like at a campfire, then I don't suppose I would, I don't know if I'd go out and do it on the road. That's a good test. I like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, I did my best, but as you might have guessed, it's a tough test not to fail. I'm sitting here waiting in the Tillamook County Jail. One phone call to Tylenol for cold gray walls closing in. If I 
Billy Strings, The Future of Bluegrass. Sometime during the early spring last year, I did what most people were doing on a weekday morning, shaking off the remnants of sleep from my bones, sitting down with a cup of coffee, and opening my computer to get to work. Except I could easily speculate that most work-from-home people didn't fall out of their chair the moment they opened their email, which I did. For some context, the previous week I had sent out rapid-fire interview requests, specifically reaching out to artists that I genuinely believed to be out of the realm of possibility for us at the time. I hadn't really expected anything of it. I just wanted to try my luck and begin pursuing bigger fish that I knew were swimming around. And I certainly didn't expect to end up on the floor, jaw dropped in pure shock when I got a bite. That's putting it mildly. When I got the bite, right there in my inbox was a response from Mr. Bill Orner. Pardon the delayed response, Clara. Thanks for thinking of Billy. We would love to be a part of Americana Podcast. Please let me know what dates you're looking at. Billy Strings, the rising and shining bluegrass phenom, who at the time was going into his first Grammy nomination, which he won, had already sold out multiple shows at major venues, and was beginning to appear at the very top of substantial festival billings. His music isn't your granddad's bluegrass, either. He was breathing a new life into the genre that the masses had never experienced before. Effects pedals, electric guitar, airs of psychedelia, and more. And we had the opportunity to talk to him. Having Billy Strings on the show was the opportunity of a lifetime. And he held up. Billy wasn't shy in his approach. His aspirations for the future were clear, and he was bold in his subscription to the label of Americana Musician. Billy has now been nominated for two more Grammys this year following the release of his fourth album, Renewal, and is seemingly always on tour, if not selling them out completely. We hope you enjoy this moment as much as we did. So, you know, just career-wise, Billy, um, given that, you know, bluegrass today, especially, it's, it's really it's really grown, and there's so many more people listening to it. It, uh, it seems to be just it, the popularity. It, it's not, it doesn't have so much stigma as it used to. It's, it's just something that's like great music, enjoyable. Like you say, it has a lot of energy a lot of times. And um, I um, so... I mean, you've got this thing happening. Uh, how far do you want to go? I, and I'm talking about just full blown, you know, out there in the world of music entertainment. I'd love to uh, have, you know, I'd love to be playing big arena shows with a banjo, you know? Right. right. I think that'd be amazing to be playing, you know, because I'm still going to play a Bill Monroe song even when I'm there. Right. You know what I mean? Like I, and I listen to a lot of, you know, popular music, you know, I listen to Billie Eilish and Post Malone and stuff like that. And, and, um, I mean that big, bigger is, right. you know, as big as it can get, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and it's not, I mean, I, I will, yeah, that's my, my goal is to take it as far as it will go. That's always been my goal. My goal, you know, in life is just to, yeah, just to take it as high as I can, you know, every, every time I reach one little, you know, milestone or something, it's just time to step up or, you know, we got to write new music or we got to practice more. We got to get better. We got to, you know, we got to step up our production. We got to, you know, it's just got to keep growing, you know, as we're growing, the music has to get better too. And, um, and so, yeah, we're always working our asses off for sure, but, but it's worth it because, you know, like, I don't know. I, and I'm not all worried about that either. I mean, I would love to go play for 20 people just as much as I'd love to play for, you know, 2,000 or 5,000 or whatever. When I was a little kid, 
I used to read, you know, Janis Joplin and Hendrix, and, uh, Kurt Cobain and Jim Morrison, all these, you know, their biographies and stuff, you know, like mm -hmm. it's always been my like dream to, to do that. But, um, when I was like a teenager, I realized that that's not really, or I did at least back then I didn't really think it was even fathom, like I couldn't even fathom, fathom that or like it, you know, it wouldn't like, that's not going to happen. But I did realize that you could play music and, you know, make enough money to pay the bills and keep it going and just keep rocking out and having fun. Right. It sure beats working some crummy job that you kind of don't like. And, <laughs> you know, having somebody pointing their finger in your face and shit telling you what to do, you know? Yes, it does. I mean, yes. shit, I'd rather play guitar any day. And at the end of the day, even if everything goes to shit, it's like, dude, you know, we're just playing music, man. Like, it's not. It's not the end of the world, you know. Where my hometown used to be. This old world is taking water. Won't be long till it goes down. Had enough to push us over. Time to turn the wheel around. The Old Soul. Brent Cobb and I wrote a song together. It was called Uncle Charlie Don't Party Anymore. Basically, Uncle Charlie had aged out of partying, but he was somewhat conflicted about his new lifestyle. Not a hit, but it had a unique message, and if you live long enough, you can empathize with the guy. These days, I'm closer to Uncle Charlie than I care to be, and although Brent had the idea and the best lines, he's not even close to stage six of Shakespeare's seven stages of life. What Brent is, however, is an old soul. He is as thoughtful and meticulous as any writer I've worked with and does not give up on an idea easily. His record from 2020, Keep Em On They Toes, is chock full of an outsider's outsider point of view, meaning he describes life and the circus around it from the outside, but doesn't exclude himself from the carnival. On the contrary, his song from that record, Sometimes I'm a Clown, places the singer dead in the middle of the laughs and cries in this circus of life. Brent is also a rare breed in the songwriting world in that he loves to talk about the craft and the magic that goes on behind the magician's assistant who revels in stealing our attention. Truly self-actualized and thoughtful, Brent is fun to write with and a joyful conversationalist. Brent Cobb is the cousin of the immensely talented producer Dave Cobb, and they have just finished Brent's newest release out in January 2022. Let's turn the page. I cannot wait. Take a listen, and you'll see what I mean. So, Brent, I want to just uh, talk about, we already kind of into it, but uh, the your upbringing, you were born in Americas and moved to Ellaville. Is that correct? That's correct. Right. Yeah. And, go ahead. Well, I, I was, I always say I was born in Americas. I was, uh, I, I grew up in Ellaville and I was raised in Richland, Georgia. Ah, okay. <laughs> uh, and, and Richland is nearby. Yeah. It's a, it's about 20 minutes down the road. It's where my, my daddy grew up at. It's where my, my great grandpa bought a hundred dollars an acre for a dollar an acre after World War One, uh -huh. and uh, 
that's where our our whole family kind of that's where you learn how to sin out there but then you also go and ask for forgiveness you know right <laughs> at, the, at the Antioch Baptist Church on Sunday yeah so you so you blow it out on Saturday night and you and you get absolved on Sunday so. and that's it you yeah. you get raised up out there so uh, Richland is the first cut on uh, no place left to leave your very first record that you made and it was yes. in 2006 is that right yes sir yeah, so uh, tell me about going to L.A. Oh man, well, it's a uh, it's a long story. I it all started when I was about seventeen. Uh, we were at a funeral of my my great aunt's funeral in in Richland, and uh, and great aunt Christine. And at this funeral, we heard that there was a, a relative of ours that was a record producer, and. You know, people in the South can be a little skeptical of outsiders. Mm-hmm. And so afterwards, we're all standing around, and Dave is standing there. And I, I say, man, I hear you're a record producer. What have you produced? And uh, and he says, well, I've done this, and I've done that, and I just did this uh, Shooter Jennings, Waylon Jennings' son album uh, called Put the O Back in Country. And when he said that, it blew my mind because that was all we'd been listening to, other than you, other than your records, we'd been listening <laughs> to uh, to that "Put the O Back in Country." And when he said that, I couldn't believe it. And uh, sh- uh, shamelessly, I I had just made a a little six song acoustic demo, and uh, and I gave him of these songs that I had written, and I gave it to him <laughs> after his grandmother's funeral, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and a couple of days later, he called the house phone. I was still living at my folks' house at that time, and, and I didn't have a cell phone. And I just got off work with a tree service crew. And uh, and I pick up the phone, and he goes, hey, is Brent there? This is Dave, and uh, I have Shooter on the phone with me. We want to fly you to L.A. and make a record. And, wow. uh, man, I looked at my buddy who I worked with, and – I was just like, you're not going to believe this. And, uh, and you know, and so that's how it all started. And I, I started going out there, and uh, the first two songs we recorded out there were Richland and Dirt Road in Georgia. And he had a – I had never really left the state of Georgia other than going to Cleveland uh, here and there growing up. And uh, so it was wild, man. He had a studio right in the middle of Hollywood on off of Kawanga. Mm-hmm. And uh, – right across the street from big wangs old bar that that had chicken wings and uh you know there was shooter i remember the first day i got there we were eating i was eating a a buffalo chicken quesadilla at big wangs and uh (laughs) and uh me and dave are sitting there and we look out the window across the street where the studio is and there's shooter walking up the road and uh and i'm you know i'm i'm I'm, I'm nervous. I, he's, he's like a hero of mine, you know, at mm-hmm. the time and still. And, uh, and here he comes, he walks in and he ordered, uh, two Coor, or, or two Coors lights and a shot of Jack Daniels. And, uh, he looked at me and he said, you're going to be all right if we can wipe some of this green off of you. And, <laughs> and wow. I was, I know, man, it just kind of blew my mind. It was wild, man. I, I, it was, it was sort of hard to accept at the time because I was so young and had never experienced anything outside of rural Southwest Georgia. But, uh, looking back, 
is some of the fondest memories that I have. But the future ain't no joke Today's just gonna slow down The punchline's funny till you choke And I keep my accent Happy faces in the crowd Laughing through the tears Oh, sometimes I'm a clown Cam Franklin, Force Majeure. Over the summer, we welcomed the one, the only, the incomparable Cam Franklin onto the show. Cam Franklin is the lead vocalist and key songwriter of the Houston-based group The Suffers. The Suffers have been working within the genre for years now, but Cam came on and really put into perspective what working in her position really entails. She talked to us about the aspects of being a musician like they were a job. Because, you know, it is a job. It is not an uncommon conversation here on the podcast, but Cam really broke down the years of training, the constant drive she had, her previous work experience and how that helped her in her career now, and what she is pushing for in the future to be like for her and her band. Cam doesn't mince words, and she's very aware of what the industry is like. But it's that knowledge that makes her a force to be reckoned with. Because for Cam, it's her world, and we're just living in it. As it should be, quite frankly. Cam is passionate and hyper-aware and hungry to not only make a difference, but also give credit to where it is due. We're fortunate to have had her on, and even I listen back to that interview and continue to learn more from it. The Suffers are finishing up recording a new album and are going back on the road after many months away from it. Should you have the opportunity, we recommend taking the time to see them. It's a rare, optimistic moment where one can catch a glimpse and listen to the world as it should be. So it went from school into the formation of the Suffers, is that right? Uh, kind of, but also no. So the Suffers mm. actually came uh-huh. The Suffers actually came about... Um, six years after I graduated high school. However, I met the majority of the band. When the Suffers first started, we were actually a 10-person band. I was the only woman, uh, and they were <laughs> with nine guys. Right. Um, and when we first started, we were all in different bands. And so I actually met them through my ska, reggae, and rock steady <laughs> groups that and I was And what was the name of that? What, was, what were the names of those, those bands? So, and this is actually kind of kind of wild to think about. My very first ska band, punk band, was a band called The Blue Lights. That was my high school band. After uh-huh. that, I was in a band called Heptic Skeptic, uh, which probably wasn't our best name, but we no. had a good time. And it was also my smallest my smallest band ever, which was four people. Um, and then after that, uh, I left doing bands for a little bit to do do my own solo thing. Um, but how I met everybody else was through sitting in with this group called the pocket and the pocket was a 13 person band that was between Houston, Austin, and San Antonio. It was a collective of rock steady reggae musicians. Um, and yeah, we'd all get together and, you know, do about like two hours of covers and songs we loved and that was it. But the Houston collective of the pocket uh, eventually became the Suffers and uh, Krungbin, and the Austin Collective became this band called the Bandulus, which is now based in Portland, Oregon. And so mm. it's kind of crazy to think that, you know, we all went from ska and now we're doing soul and 
Mark's over with his group doing psych rock. And, you know, it, it, I feel like everything's kind of just connected musically. If you can <laughs> learn one, you can learn them all and learn them all well. So are you obviously like large groups of people playing? How do you manage all the personalities? And, the, uh, you know, the, you know, there's a lot of personalities in those kind of bands. And uh, uh, I'm well, just curious about how you would with, uh, handle with, that. <laughs> they say uh, your life prepares you for the job you're supposed to have later on sometimes. Uh -huh. And so uh, there is a period of time where I wasn't regularly performing because I had gone through a little bit of depression and thought like, oh, this isn't going to happen for me because I'd had that pumped into my brain. And so I was working a side gig that eventually became a full-time gig at this uh, investment bank. And while I was working there, they started training me to eventually become a power trader. <laughs> and uh, I was really good at it and started learning and learning and learning and learning. But a big part of that job uh, was project management and managing teams and mm -hmm. uh, catering whew, to about 24 traders a day and, right. you know, addressing issues, addre addressing mistakes before the market closed that day. So, you know, going from 24, I could go to 10, right? Um, it's probably the, also the reason I, I had a little bit of a reputation for being mean when I first mm -hmm. joined the music industry, which I thought was hilarious. I was like, I came from Wall Street to the mm -hmm. music industry i thought y'all were the jerks you know <laughs> so right. i was like okay let me turn it down a little bit i can soften up now okay great um but when i finally got into the suffers and was able to kind of drive the ship a little bit more as a band leader and not right. just as you know a girl in the band like hey guys i'm good at managing teams i'm good at creative management i'm good at pro project management but that doesn't mean I'm good at band management, right? I wasn't trying to do that. Uh, so once we got a team that understood where we were trying to go as a unit and as a vision, the band was able to like really have some come to Jesus moments, especially over the pandemic about like, where are our strengths? Where, you know, what what can we do better? Um, you know, what, what are things that we don't want to return to when this is over? And, you know, a big thing was disorganization and, you know, over over uh loaded schedules and mm -hmm. before i worked as the trade analyst i had worked for years as an executive assistant oh i know how to plan oh i know how to do this oh i know how to mm -hmm. do that you know like once i realized this was an achievable dream oh my gosh of course i'm gonna chase it mm -hmm. i had already gotten that speech about how hard it's gonna be yeah 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 you might not sell anything that doesn't mean i'm gonna sell nothing if you find your path within this industry, which is the goal for all of us, you know, and find those people that appreciate and love what you do, you'll always be able to have a job here. It's just, you know, working smarter and not so dang hard. And, you know, after 10 years, it's like a marriage. So, you know, we could be miserable going into year 11, or we could be like those healthy couples that like, yeah, we fight, but like, when we have fun, we have fun. <laughs> You know, the big word that I want to reiterate for us and for any, you know, young artist or band that might be listening, communication, 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 communication. Because if you go into any situation, be it with four band members, 10 band members, a thousand, whatever, and everybody doesn't know what's going on, there's going to be some chaos that erupts. But sure. if everybody's functioning on the same page or you have a leader and everybody knows that person's the leader. Maybe not the band leader, but today they're the leader of this project. I'm not out here trying to uh, 
make my band feel like it's me and them. Nah, like we started in this together. One of the earliest pieces of advice we also got came from uh, Lionel Richie, who was like, don't y'all ever break up because they're going to try to break y'all up. And he was right, right. every year. Mm -hmm. But he also taught me, and uh, Jim James taught me the same thing from uh, My Morning Jacket. You can right. have a solo career and your band. <laughs> like you could have yeah. a solo career and your band. And I realized, oh my God, I can. But if I want to keep them, I got to act like it. And so that's checking on them. That's talking to them that if you don't like this new music, let's talk about it. If it, if it doesn't feel good to you, let's cut it. You know, I'm not saying everything you do is wrong, but sometimes the weight makes it so hard to carry on. If I said nothing, At Americana Podcast, we would like to thank every guest that has ever appeared on the show so far, their respective teams who have been so patient in making this work, and our host, Robert Earl Keane. Americana Podcast is brought to you by Keane Productions and American Songwriter. Produced and edited by Clara Rose, recordings by Brett Brock, mixed by David Beck, and with original music by Kim Warner. Until next time, let the music play. Let the music play.